You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. I'm Ralph McInerney, and this is a course in uh, Kierkegaard and Newman, two enormously important thinkers of the 19th century. This is a course for the International Catholic University. We have, as you know, sequences of courses that are aimed at the MA in philosophy and another in theology. And after the more fundamental or basic courses, we have a number of courses which are auxiliary and elective, and this is one of those, a course on Kierkegaard and Newman. And for reasons that will appear as I continue, it can serve as a elective both in the philosophy and in the theology sequence. I should say that personally, it's a particular delight for me to give this course. I was introduced to Kierkegaard when I was a graduate student at the University of Minnesota. And indeed, when I look at my copies of Kierkegaard, this is one of his works that I'll be referring to, I open it up and I find that I bought it in January of 1952. So for over a half century, I have been a student of Kierkegaard and to have been introduced to him at the University of Minnesota was a particular boon because it was there that the first translations from the Danish to the English of Kierkegaard's works began with David Swenson and with his wife. Minneapolis, Minnesota is a very Scandinavian sort of place. And Swenson, who was a professor of philosophy at the University of Minnesota, just happened upon a Danish edition of the concluding unscientific postscript, as I say, I'll refer to that later, and bought it and took it home and read it. And in the phrase, it changed his life. He devoted himself to making Kierkegaard known in the English-speaking world. And indeed, the work that he began was carried on by a number of other people and has reached its crown in more recent years. But these pioneers should be remembered. My own teacher was Paul Homer, who had been a student of Swenson and who went on to become a notable philosopher of religion in his own right. As for Newman, I remember vividly when I was 13 years old, finding a biography of Newman in the school library, which had the title, The Red Hat. And I read it with great avidity and felt introduced, at least imaginatively, to the life of the University of Oxford, with which, of course, Newman was associated. Now, these two men both lived in the 19th century. Newman's dates are 1801 to 1890. So his lifetime almost spanned that entire century. And his dates bracket those of Soren Kierkegaard, who was born in May 1813 in Copenhagen and died in November of 1855, also in Copenhagen. These two men did not know one another. And as we look back at the 19th century, their names jump out at us. They're commonly recognized as being geniuses whose prowess tend to transcend the usual divisions of, say, philosophical or theological activity. 
And we're inclined, because of this retrospective view, to think that they were as important to their contemporaries as they have become for us. And while there's some basis for thinking that in the case of Newman, there's almost none for thinking that in the case of Kierkegaard. They were both religious thinkers. And both of them, although they lived in the 19th century, did not consider themselves to be of it. They were very countercultural in their thoughts and in their writings. They were, in different ways, champions of that old-time religion uh, against what they took to be misapprehensions of it, misdescriptions of it, and indeed quite confused understandings of what Christianity is. David Swenson, whom I mentioned, had this to say about the relationship between Kierkegaard and Newman, and he was writing 75 years ago. He put it this way, Newman was looking for the objectively true church so that he could join it, whereas Kierkegaard was seeking so to live that those who lived as he did would constitute with him the true church. That's a well-turned phrase, and there's some truth in it, but I think it doesn't tell us sufficiently well about either man. It makes Newman sound like an utterly objective, impersonal thinker who's just looking for the proper credential for the church, and then he signs on, whereas Kierkegaard is just existing as a Christian and constituting with those who exist that way, the Christian church. This leaves out the enormous literary productivity and reflection that Kierkegaard devoted to the issue of Christianity. So if there is something to that contrast that Swenson draws between Kierkegaard and Newman, we probably will come to see more qualifications necessary for it as I proceed. Among the things that they shared was a distaste for the established church. Newman, of course, began as an evangelical, but within the Anglican Church, he was ordained a priest in the Anglican Church, and he eventually became a Roman Catholic. But one of the things that bothered him as an Anglican was the fact that decisions about church government were made by the British Parliament, many of whose members who voted on these matters were not Christians, certainly not members of the Anglican Church. So the politicization of Christianity in England was one of the aspects of Newman's growing discontent with the church of his origin. In much the same way, Kierkegaard in Denmark was the Lutheran church that was established, became a severe critic of this kind of civil service understanding of the life of the clergy. Newman eventually left the Anglican Church, as I say, and joined the Roman Catholic Church, having failed to see the Anglican Church as simply a version of the Catholic Church. That was one of the drives of the Oxford Movement, as we'll be seeing when we turn to Newman. Kierkegaard, although he did not take orders in the Danish Lutheran Church, studied as a theologian and in his youth dreamt, as I will point out, of having a small country parish and living in seclusion. This seems to be a recurring clerical dream. Priests or ministers who are too busy think of some little country parish where all the parishioners will be very much devoted to them and they will be able to live out their lives in serenity and piety. Kierkegaard was not very well informed about Roman Catholic theology. He was very well versed in the fathers of the church, but the whole medieval period, in a way that's not unusual or wasn't unusual 
at that time for Protestants was just terra incognita to him. We have the list of his library, he had an enormous library, which was auctioned off, but we have a list of it, and there's almost no representatives of what one would call Catholic theology of the 18th century, certainly of the Middle Ages. So it is a blank. I mention this because there have been attempts to argue that Kierkegaard, as his thought developed, became closer and closer to the Roman Catholic Church. There was a Danish Jesuit named Rus, R-O-O-S, who argued along these lines. And he was countered by Father Cornelio Fabro, who argued that this simply wasn't true, that this was fanciful, actually, to imagine that Kierkegaard was drawing closer to something which he very imperfectly understood. Fabro, an Italian priest, was responsible for the translation into Italian of the works of Kierkegaard. He actually went to Copenhagen to perfect his knowledge of Danish in order that he might carry through this enormous project. And he was a very productive scholar, and this is one of the great achievements of his life, but only one of his achievements. I wrote my dissertation on Kierkegaard a thousand years ago, and I became aware of these articles of Father Roos, and of course that piqued my curiosity. But then I became aware of Fabro's response to those, and I actually learned Italian so I could read the very lengthy introduction that Fabro had written to his Italian edition of the journals of Kierkegaard, the Diario, as he called it. And I looked at it, and I could, from my knowledge of Latin and French, I could make out what the headings of the paragraphs were, and that whetted my interest. And as I say, for that purpose, I learned Italian so that I might read it. And I subsequently became acquainted with, and I think I can say friends with Father Fabro, and developed a great admiration for him. We were both Thomas, but one of our points of contact was this common interest in Kierkegaard. The course that we're about to embark on then is dealing with two figures of gigantic proportions in the 19th century. Whether or not they were seen to be that in their own time is questionable. In the case of Kierkegaard, there really isn't any question. He was known very little outside of Denmark. He spoke of himself in this historical situation of writing in a language that very few people read, and nonetheless he wrote, and it's noteworthy as we read his journals, he wrote in the serene conviction that what he was writing would have an impact far beyond Denmark and far beyond his own time. He proved to be a prophet in his own case. He left Denmark on only two occasions, and on both occasions he went to Berlin and didn't stay very long. He followed on one occasion some lectures by the German idealist Schelling, but by and large he was a product of Danish culture of the University of Copenhagen and of the small circle in which he lived. He was regarded as an eccentric. He was regarded as very strange. We were talking just in a moment about Kierkegaard's life, and we'll begin to see why even within the small compass of Denmark, his influence was, let us say, ambiguous. Newman was far better known in his own country than Kierkegaard was in his, I think that's safe to say, but his reputation was extremely ambiguous during his own time. And his conversion to Catholicism created a great deal of turmoil and generated, as we will see, one of his most influential books, the Apologia Pro Vita Sua. Kierkegaard, as I mentioned, was born in May of 1813 in Copenhagen. 
and lived there for all practical purposes for his whole life. Certain trips of his to Jutland in Denmark, and as I mentioned, several trips outside the country, both of them to Berlin, but he wasn't there on either occasion long enough to really take on any personal influence from a milieu other than the Danish. So he is, in every sense of the term, a Danish thinker, and if there are great Danes, he's the greatest Dane of them all, by fairly common consent, but again in retrospect. His writings are considered to have brought the Danish language to a peak of literary perfection. Kierkegaard somewhere defines genius as the incommensurability between an objective occasion and the interior response to it. And in that sense, certainly, Kierkegaard was a genius. When we look at the events of his life, we're going to think this was a very uneventful life. He was born into a family. His father had married a second time, and Kierkegaard was the youngest of a batch of children, his father's favorite. He was a very successful student. There might have been some handicap. It's hard to tell. Sometimes caricatures of Kierkegaard depict him almost as a hunchback, but that he was weak and physically not agile. He was drafted, for example, and lasted about three days. He was sent home as being physically unfit for military service. But he was the apple of his father's eye. And this led to one of the autobiographical incidents in Kierkegaard's life to which he himself referred what he called the Great Earthquake. And this seems to have been the revelation by his father to his son that when he was a young boy on the heaths of Jutland, very poor, very depressed circumstances, out taking care of the cattle, he became so angry that he shook his fist at the heavens and cursed God. And this was something that bothered him for the rest of his life. He subsequently moved to Copenhagen, became a very successful businessman, sold his business, and in Kierkegaard's youth, his father was devoting himself to study particularly theology, things religious. And his religiosity was increasingly melancholy and it lay like a heavy hand on his young son. And then this revelation occurred of his father telling him of this cursing of God when he was a young boy. And among the things his father told him since he had lost a number of his children was he thought there was a curse upon him and that the curse would play itself out in this way, that he was destined to outlive all his children. Now this is a father telling this to his young son. When Kierkegaard's father died, it prompted Kierkegaard's first book, non-academic book, From the Papers of One Still Living. The very title suggests that he had accepted his father's guess about the curse upon his life and consequently found himself surprised to have survived his paternal parent, as Dickens would put it. This was one of the great episodes in Kierkegaard's life. He constantly recurs to it. His diaries are enormous so that we can follow from a fairly early age his thinking, his spirituality, his ups and downs and so forth. But this looms large, the great earthquake, as he called it. Subsequently, when he was a university student, there seems to have been a moral fall on his part. We're in the 19th century, so these things are not depicted or discussed with a great deal of graphic detail. 
But there seems reason to think that Kierkegaard was taken off to a brothel by his fellow students and there did what people do in brothels, and he never forgot it. He always thought that he, too, was living a life of a penitent, and this doubtless be one of the major reasons for that view of his life. And the third great incident was his engagement. He became engaged to a young girl who was 10 years his junior. He was in his late 20s and she wasn't yet 20, Regine Olson. And almost immediately after he became engaged to her, he had the sense that it was a mistake. Now when I say he became engaged to her, I don't mean that they whispered in the front seat of a car and entered into a promise to one another. This was a formal engagement with an exchange of rings and so forth. It was a declaration to society that these two intended to wed. So it wasn't a secret, it was very formal, and as I say, almost immediately after entering into that engagement, Kierkegaard began to have second thought. Now this has opened him, of course, to all kinds of amateur ex post facto psychologizing with respect to his relations to women and so forth. But what is clear is that if there is any single inspiration for Kierkegaard's literature, and I don't think there is just a single one, but one of the great inspiration for what we will be seeing in Kierkegaard's literature is his attempt to explain and justify to himself and to Regina the fact that he had broken this engagement. And the way in which he broke the engagement opens up a whole dimension of Kierkegaard that will be reflected in his many writing. What he wanted to do was to break the engagement in such a way that she would be breaking the engagement. I mean, he didn't want to jilt her, he wanted her to jilt him. Now, she was a very, uh, how should I say, unsophisticated young woman and probably had very great difficulty following Kierkegaard's mind as he chattered to her, a university student talking to this young girl, and certainly the subtlety with which he wanted to break this engagement would have been somewhat lost on her. At any rate, the engagement was broken. He was regarded as a scoundrel by many people who had known of the engagement, had known about his breaking of it, and that reputation did not go away because of the way in which the engagement or something analogous to it will show up in any number of Kierkegaard's writing. After his father died, he had been a very, how should I say, lackadaisical university student while his father was still alive. But after the death of his father, he returned with great seriousness to his university studies and took his master's in theology. And at that time, the University of Copenhagen retained the medieval notion that to call someone a master was to saying he'd reached the top of the heap as far as learning went. So to be a magister or master was not, as it's come to be, something on the way to becoming a STD or PhD. It was to be a doctor. And subsequently, the University of Copenhagen, some 20 years later, I think it was, changed the designation of their terminal or highest degree from master to doctor. In any case, Kierkegaard earned a doctorate in theology, and his first published work was The Concept of Irony in Socrates. And while he had been very successful in examinations and the like, once he put his mind to it, what we are told about the dissertation is it was accepted. 
This sounds rather minimal as far as the enthusiasm of his examiners went, and this is probably true. I mean, here's a theology dissertation which is devoted to the concept of irony in Socrates with very few allusions to or applications of the concept to the religious. That would come, although there's no reason to think other than just the bent of his mind and his sort of natural interest that this dissertation topic was seen by him as anything like a guiding thread for the literature that would eventually emerge. What turned Kierkegaard into a writer was his broken engagement. These other things that I mentioned had their impact, but what generated, what triggered off what we call his literature was the breaking of his engagement with Regina. Immediately afterwards, he had that dream that I mentioned that he would take his degree, he would then become ordained in the Danish Lutheran Church, and then he would seek out some reclusive parish outside Copenhagen, and there he would live in decent obscurity, repenting for his sins and trying to be as good a Christian as he could. This was not to be, and the world is richer for its not having been the case. Kierkegaard's destiny was to do something far beyond that, far beyond helping a certain small group of people in a parish during his lifetime, but to have affected the thinking on Christianity of many for decades and decades after his life, and indeed for you and me here in the third millennium. The literary production, I am going to put on the web a kind of chart that will give you some idea of what I mean when I talk about Kierkegaard's literary production. It begins in 1843. I'm putting to one side his doctoral dissertation, Magisteric Master's dissertation, the concept of irony in Socrates, and the little from the papers of one still living, which was just occasioned almost spontaneously, we might say, by the death of his father in 1843 when he's 30 years old, suddenly a flood of writings, and that is not an exaggeration, begin to appear from his pen. I'm going to distinguish, as you'll see when you see the chart, I'm going to distinguish this literature, this flood, as coming in three major waves. One would go from 1843 to 1846, three years. You figure, well, there can't be much of a wave. I can count something like, oh, 20, some titles that appear during that three-year period. And here is the first thing to notice about this literature. You'll see that I will divide it into columns. In the left column will be pseudonymous works, that is, works which Kierkegaard published but under different pseudonyms. And in the right-hand column will be works that appeared under his own name. And the significance of this is something to which I will return. But from 1843 to 1846, there is this spate of books. And it was as if he'd get this out of the way, and then again, that dream, he would seek a country parish and so forth. But a second wave of literature begins in 1847 and goes through 1848. And then what I'm going to call the third wave, which is a much more specifically and overtly Christian, even anti-Christian, in the sense of anti-establishmentarian Christian, Christianity begins in 1849. And then I, after those three waves, I'll give a fourth. Having said there are three, I'll give four. A final wave, which is his pamphleteering attack on the Danish Lutheran Church. As I said, the breaking of the engagement with Regina Olson seems to have been the trigger 
that turned Kierkegaard into an author. And if you look at the works that appear during that first three-year period, this, this phenomenal number of works attributed to a variety of pseudonyms in the left-hand column, you have either or, which appeared in 1843, and is attributed to Victor Eremita, huh? the hermit as conqueror, as victor. There is repetition, which is attributed to Constantine Constantius, and there is fear and trembling, which is attributed to Ioannis de Silencio. Accompanying these are edifying discourses published by Master Soren Kierkegaard. And these are more or less overtly religious. Now, if you look at either or, it's going to be very puzzling to wonder what this master of theology is up to in writing such a book as either or. It's in two volumes. The first volume is kind of depiction of the vacillation of a young man, and it ends with a famous section called The Diary of the Seducer. And as you can imagine, this was first translated separately into French. It's got a kind of racy, gothic approach to it. It's about the systematic seduction of a young woman by the seducer, Ioannis. And it's, you might say, as opposed to the works in the right-hand column, this is not exactly an edifying kind of work. Now, there are several things to take into account with respect to Kierkegaard's literature, but I would say the chief, the crucial thing is this. There are two schools of thought, two manners of approaching Kierkegaard. On the one hand, there are those who think that a work that he wrote well down the line in 1848 called the point of view of my work as an author, that this is the key to the authorship of Kierkegaard. As you can see, it's written after that first flood of works, and it's written prior to other work. So one school of thought would say, this is the key, the point of view of my work as an author. Another school would simply point out, as I just did, well, look, this is a retrospect. We can hardly take this as representing what he thought he was going to do. When he began, he thought about it later. And he did a lot of things after this book which are not covered by it, so why be guided by this? And sometimes there is sort of uh, critical arrogance that says, why should we take the writer's word for his work rather than our own? Uh, what does he know that we don't know? Well, of these two schools of thought, I belong to the first. I think the point of view of my work as an author is absolutely fundamental to understanding the Kierkegaardian authorship. It explains the pseudonyms. It explains the relationship between the two columns. It makes clear to us what was driving him from the beginning. And it doesn't matter, it seems to me, whether he articulated it in the way that he did in the point of view. It's clearly there as you look at the works in the light of the suggestion of the point of view, they take on a significance which it seems to me they otherwise cannot have. The thing that he tells us in the point of view is this, I was from first to last a religious author. Despite the surprising contents of volume one of either or, what Kierkegaard is out to do is to give the clearest possible expression of what it means to be a Christian. That's what he's trying to do. And just as in the case of his broken engagement, he didn't just go down to the Olsons and ask to see Regina and give the ring back and say it's all over. That wouldn't have been Kierkegaardian. What Kierkegaard had to do is do it 
by way of obliquity and indirection and try to get her to do what he wanted to do. So too, with respect to the authorship, there is something always oblique and indirect about it. He will develop a notion both concurrently with and after writing many of these works of what he called indirect communication. Here's a rough way of approaching it. If someone like Kierkegaard became aware of the fact that others like himself, perhaps no longer, but like himself, called themselves Christians, but their lives did not exhibit this kind of commitment, then the question is, how do you deal with someone like that? And what you cannot do, Kierkegaard suggests is this, it isn't as if people in Denmark don't know what Christianity is. I mean, it's not a matter of increasing their knowledge of what it is. It isn't as if they skipped a catechism lesson somewhere along the line, didn't hear, let's say, of the sixth or the ninth commandment, and you have to just bring them up to speed on it, and then everything will be fine. No, the problem is this, that knowing what Christianity is, we don't live it. So what he came to see was this. This is absolutely central to Kierkegaard's production. A kind of direct argument when you're talking about what he came to call the existential. That is, and we'll see this in Newman, when you're talking about arguments which are meant to, or discourse, which are meant not simply to get someone to change his mind, but to get him to change his life, the discourse has to be proportionate to that effect. And what Kierkegaard wanted to do was to so present the problem of what we could call nominal Christianity to nominal Christian, that it would be brought home to them in a way that wasn't simply cognitive, wasn't simply a matter of a mental recognition, this discrepancy between their alleged commitments and their lives, their existence. Now, what happened then? As Kierkegaard said, who knows? I mean, it's not the case that one human being can affect this kind of transition in another human being. This is a matter of grace and conversion. So all such an indirect communicator, in the Kierkegaardian sense, can do is to open the possibility. And one does that, first of all, by foreclosing the possibility that one thinks it's just a matter of understanding, of a little more learning, of an argument that would really be a zinger, and after that one's life would be utterly changed. Now it's a matter of insinuating yourself into the psyche of another, which you take to be somewhat like your own. There's this gap between commitment and existence. And you try to prepare little traps, so to speak, that will make it difficult for someone to overlook this discrepancy between, again, commitment and existence, and then withdraw. The indirect communicator then withdraws, and as we used to say in the wedding ceremony, the rest is in the hands of God. So it's a very modest kind of enterprise that Kierkegaard undertook. But what he wanted to do, as he sometimes says, I want to reintroduce Christianity into Christendom. And one of the things that he saw as a negative effect, being born into a Christian country, where being a Christian was sort of like being a Dane. You just were that. I mean, what else would you be? You live in Denmark. Denmark is a Christian country. Therefore, you are a Christian. This kind of extrinsic denomination 
is something which is, whatever the advantages of being born in a Christian country, this is one of the great disadvantages, that one thinks that effortlessly, in the way that one has freckles or red hair or not much hair at all, that it just happens to you, and it's not a matter of what you do. So this was one of the givens or presuppositions of Kierkegaard's literature that we're all, speaking all we Danes, we're all inclined to think that we already are Christian. So it looks as if it's not a problem for us. And if someone raised it, we'd say, what is it that I don't know? Huh? As if, again, there's some book to read or some argument to follow. And what Kierkegaard wanted was not knowledge, but the application or appropriation of that knowledge. And his task as a writer was, again, to try to bring his reader to the point where assimilation is clearly the indicated goal. And then, as I say again, withdraw. Kierkegaard couldn't bring that about. We can't bring it about for one another. We can't bring it about by ourselves as such. It's a matter of grace and God's help. But we can. There is a kind of aid of this indirect kind that we can give to one another. Kierkegaard did not take orders, and he was consequently always speaking of himself as doing this thing without authority. That is, he had no pastoral responsibility, he had no pastoral authority. He did preach sermons as a theology student, and we have those sermons, and indeed some of the edifying discourses which balance the pseudonymous works have their origin in actual church homilies. But no, as he was there as a kind of a tyro rather than a ordained minister. So he's never speaking with the authority, one might say, of the Christian community of the church, but solely in propria persona, which was another reason why he felt he couldn't proceed directly. But of course, he thought at first and for a long time that no one could proceed directly that it's just wrong to think, and we'll see how he develops this wrongness, it's wrong to think that Christianity is some kind of cognitive problem and that our task is to get learned in it and that you distinguish between Christians on the basis of their being learned or not learned. One of his well-turned phrases about Christianity is this, the simple man does not understand Christianity and the wise man understands that he doesn't understand Christianity. This is a Socratic ignorance that Kierkegaard transposes or carries on into the religious realm and into the realm of Christian communication. So nominal Christianity and real Christianity. He also developed a theory which has received a great deal of attention, and that is a theory of the spheres of existence. And we might think that it arises something like this. If people who are nominal Christians are not living, as Kierkegaard will put it, in Christian categories, not living in Christian categories, what categories are they living in? And what Kierkegaard developed was this notion of an aesthetic sphere of existence. And this is represented by the items in the first volume of Either Or, someone whose life is really sensual rather than spiritual, even though if you ask him if he's filling out an application for a passport, in those days at least he would put down Christian under his religion, or when one joined the service, he used to put down what religion you were. So someone might just put down Christian, a Danish Lutheran of Kierkegaard's day, and Kierkegaard's saying, but he knows he doesn't live as a Christian. How does he live? 
What are the categories that explain his choices? And one big answer to that, and it turns out to be a very variegated sphere, is the aesthetic sphere. A next sphere is what he called the ethical sphere. And the ethical consists of the universal human, the universal human. And that's not yet the religious, although it's the depiction of the ethical sphere is a very warm and domestic one, and it can, as Judge Wilhelm is the pater familias, surrounded by his chubby daughters and sons and his rosy-cheeked wife and so forth. That looks very nice, but that's not Christianity. And if we ask ourselves, what more is there? What we have is one of the most powerful books, pseudonymous works that Kierkegaard ever published, Fear and Trembling, in which he takes up the case of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. Well, the great background for much of the pseudonymous literature and the sense of progression that we have in it is explained by this notion of spheres of existence. And it is as if, I don't think Kierkegaard held this very rigorously, it is as if one moves from being a nominal Christian by moving through and out of aesthetic categories and then into ethical or universally human categories, and then on the basis of some crisis, we'll come to see the real demands of religion and ultimately of Christianity. But there is that kind of suggestion, and what he will argue about the aesthetic, we first of all would think perhaps of art and painting and poetry and that sort of thing. He intends that, but there is also the Greek term, aesthesis which means touch or perception. So that the range of representatives of the aesthetic life that one finds in volume one of either or runs from just a sort of dreamy adolescent young man whose moods fluctuate wildly. He's the toy of his emotion. The motto of the first volume of either or is taken from the English poet Young, are passions then the pagans of the soul, reason alone baptized. And it's as if in some of the depictions of the aesthetic life, perhaps all of them, what we're getting is an effort to have a life lived on the basis of the passions and the emotion by someone who is a rational animal. And clearly, the sensuous life is one to which one has to put his mind. It's one of the reasons why we're held accountable for what we do if we follow the guide of our emotions against the guidance of reason. We have to put our minds to that. So we're acting badly. We're not just simply being swept along by our passion. And what Kierkegaard's, I think, emerging notion of the project of the aesthetic mode of existence was this that we're trying to put our mind to live mindlessly. It's almost an analogy, it's like trying to see yourself in a mirror without looking. Huh? And what he's suggesting is no human being can really live this way. I mean, the life of the emotions, the life lived just for pleasure, whether this is of the cruder and basis kind, or whether it's extremely aesthetic in, in that other sense of the term, that is not a life that is possible for a human being. Those cannot be the ultimate categories of one's life. So that even with the diary of the seducer, what one is being given, I think, is a project that is impossible of realization. So in one way, the progression from volume one of either or to volume two, which is the ethical, if there is a transition, it's not an argument 
so much as it is our failure to be able to live a life which is purely passional or emotive. I've noticed that, for example, it's one of the oldest things in moral philosophy to find philosophers asking whether riches could be the ultimate good of human life, whether fame could be the ultimate good of human life, etc. They run through a whole series of things and they come up with arguments. Money, could that be it? And Thomas, in the Summa, goes through them. Could happiness consist of these things? And he gives arguments of the usual kind, but then he adds almost as an aside that the best arguments against these things being our ultimate end is having them, huh? is having them. So that when you're rich, you'll find that money isn't going to make you happy. But right now, even impoverished as we both are, we could develop an argument that would show that money is not the purpose of life. But Thomas has this little wistful addendum, as I say, if you think that would make you happy, well, if you had it, you would know it doesn't. Huh? Fame isn't going to make you happy. Money isn't going to make you happy. Sensual pleasure isn't going to make you happy, and so forth. So something like that is Kierkegaard's point. Try it, and you'll see it doesn't work. So the way out of the aesthetic sphere is not by way of an argument, but by what Kierkegaard's authors call despair. You despair of being able to lead that kind of life. Now, the symbol of the aesthetic sphere for Kierkegaard is, not surprisingly, the seducer. The man who tries to live in the moment, whose erotic episodes form no continuous line. They don't build up a history. They're just discrete or indiscreet events that don't relate to one another. So one of the great models of this in either or is Don Giovanni, Mozart's opera, and Leporello, who is a scorekeeper, and in one of the great arias, talks about 1,003 conquests in Spain alone. And of course, he's thumping his chest and so forth. But Kierkegaard's author asks us to think about that. 1,003 seductions in Spain alone. There's something crazy about that. There's something despairing about it. There's a kind of repetitiveness that is an indication of the dissatisfying character of living in this sort of way. Anyway, the symbol of the aesthetic for Kierkegaard is the seducer. The symbol of the ethical is the husband or the spouse. Here is a man who has subsumed, or here are people, persons, husband and wife, who have subsumed the sensuous or the emotive into a higher telos. They are representing the universal human. They're having children. They're raising their children. They're rearing their children. They are members of society. There are certain obligations and expectations that come their way because they're parents, because they have children. Eventually, they'll have grandchildren and so forth. This is a kind of fulfillment Kierkegaard depicts with great power in the second volume of Either Or. He gives a summary of these fears in a book a little bit later at the end of this first wave called Stages on Life's Way. Stadi sulla via della vita, it's called in the Italian. Then it moves from the aesthetics into the ethical and then opens to the religious. How does Kierkegaard open to the religious? In Fear and Trembling, as I mentioned, he takes up in a masterful way. It, it would be impossible to overpraise the artistry of fear and trembling in which the story of Abraham is used to draw attention to the essence of faith. St. Paul refers to Abraham as the father of faith 
And what Ioannis Silencio Kierkegaard's pseudonym is saying, this is the episode, this shows you Abraham is guided by faith, as opposed to what? Well, we might say as opposed to reason. If the ethical is a kind of reasonable mode of existence, one that you can explain to your neighbors, and they say, yeah, that's right, that's the way we ought to live, and so forth. What he wants to use the Abraham story to manifest is that the religious flies in the face of natural human reasoning. So what if you remember that story, Abraham has a dream in which he's told to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Now we know that the prelude to this is that Abraham and Sarah are extremely old. When Sarah is told that she's going to have a child, Sarah laughs in that famous verse. It's funny, it's crazy. How could I have a child? They have a child. So already Isaac is a miraculous child, so to speak, and he is the vehicle of divine promises to Abraham. Your progeny will be as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heaven. And now Abraham, after this surprising childbirth, and with all of these promises, he's being told, take him up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Now what Kierkegaard through Ioannis of Silencio does at the beginning of Fear and Trembling is work through a number of scenarios. Because what does Abraham do in the story? He gets up and forthwith goes to Mount Moriah. But forthwith takes a three-day journey. Huh? And Ioannis of Silencio wants to ponder, what must he be thinking? Was he in despair? Was he saying, okay, I'll do this, but God is a liar. He told me this and I have to do this and so on. This story, he works up all the changes on it. He brings all the changes on it. And then, of course, you and I, when we hear a reference to the story, we jump ahead because we know how it turns out. We know that when Abraham gets up there and he's building the pyre to put Isaac on, and Isaac is saying, what are we going to sacrifice? And of course, Abraham's very silent, really. Doesn't even tell Sarah where he's going. At the crucial moment, there is the ram who comes in, a substitute from the rams, and he is sacrificed, Isaac is saved, Everything is fine. Huh? And we know how the story comes out, so we can overlook. And this is the point of fear and trembling, to rob the story of its familiarity so that we can see what it would be like to be Abraham and to be asked to do something that makes no sense. It makes no sense if God is to be trusted, this command makes no sense whatsoever. Out of this story, and others, but this is the most powerful depiction of it. Kierkegaard develops this notion of when it is and how it is that the specifically religious appears in our lives. And it is when, in a fancy phrase, there is a teleological suspension of the ethical absolute. Because the way Silencio wants to depict this is Abraham is being asked to commit a murder Isaac is innocent, if anyone is, and he's being asked to kill him. To kill the innocent is murder. But he's doing it because God told him to do it. So something which is, from an ethical point of view, murder, is, from the point of view of God's command, a holy and pleasing act. But what we should note about it is this. Abraham can't explain that to anybody. Yeah? He can't tell, well, I had this dream, and I would go, I mean, she'd bundle him off someplace. If people stopped him on the way and said, where are you going? I'm going up on this mountain and kill my son. Well, they probably would try to stop him. 
And if he said, well, God told me to, then they'd really try to stop him because they'd figure this guy needs help. So that what Johannes Ossolinsky was trying to do is to remove the incrustations of familiarity and, well, isn't everyone a Christian from us? And through this Abraham story, to bring crashingly in upon us how against ordinary human expectations religious faith is, how the demands of Christianity are not just ordinary demand, be good to your wife and so forth, they will crucially uh, demand that we act contrary to natural reason. So these are the three spheres of Kierkegaard, and having mentioned them, I'm going to go on in the next lecture to talk about something somewhat different. In the point of view, Kierkegaard tells us this, there are two directions in the pseudonymous literature. There are two termini a quo, we might say. On the one hand, away from the aesthetic to the religious. And on the other, one I haven't talked about yet, away from philosophy to the religious. Uh, in the Kierkegaardian literature, away from philosophy. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.